Tall, dark, and deadly. The tech-savvy sleuth, debonair style, from the airy isle. Pierce Brosnan's suave diction and smooth operations earned him a place in the crosshairs amongst his fellow MI6 admirables. This storied stage master's tenure as 007 ushered in a new era for the franchise and continually ensured that Bond would live another day. I'm American film journalist Rupert Carmichael. Join me and our most beloved Bond, George Lazenby, for a tantalizing introspection about where Bond began and where he's going next. In conjunction with the PBS and the BBC, this is Building a Better Bond. Greetings, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Building a Better Bond. I'm Rupert Carmichael, and with me today to talk about one of the more recent chapters, what some would call the beginning of the modern Bond. This episode, of course, discusses Piers Brosnan, but before we get to that, George, thank you again for joining me here in the booth this afternoon. Would you mind introducing me as creative director and thought leader extraordinaire of the James Bond franchise, George Lazenby? And our listeners can't hear this right now, right? I'm talking quiet enough. No, we are live, George, and uh, it doesn't matter how quietly you talk if your lips are brushing up against the microphone. What if it's very quiet? Can you introduce me as I requested? George, I believe you are working at odds with yourself. The softer you talk, the closer you get. To the microphone. What if I talk even softer, with my lips just lightly touching the microphone, ever so slightly? Can you introduce me as creative director and thought leader extraordinaire? With me today is the creative director and thought leader extraordinaire of the Bond franchise at large. I speak, of course, of the beloved George Lazenby. Oh, Rupert, you are too kind. You are too kind with that introduction. But do you come up with that yourself? I was fed it by a brilliant creative director, and... I only speak the truth because there's a reason we have you here talking about this moment where Bond became a modern film franchise. It started with a change in direction, not only with acting, but also with technology. We'll get to that in a moment. George, what do you say to the theories that list Piers Brosnan as a watershed moment? for 007, the moment that it became the bond it is today. Well, if the water you're talking about in Watershed is the water that's squirted from Roger Moore's lapel and shedding all of that off, I think that is correct. Something that I think, Rupert, people forget about the era of Bond that we came from to get to Pierce Brosnan was that if you strip away all the, the Roger Moore stuff from that part of the franchise, there were still, you know, passable films. And it pains me to say that. You can see my hands are, are trembling slightly right now. You've become a shade of orange that I am not certain is brought on by normal biological means. You know, Roger Moore was, he was a narcissistic wannabe prop comedian at the end of his tenure. And people forget that everybody else involved with the film still had creative ideas. They were just stifled by Roger Moore's Marxist psychotic presence. And I'm referring to Groucho Marx. What Brosnan did as a seasoned actor, he realized this, and then he kind of 
exploited the franchise into a well-oiled machine that it would become. And sometimes, Rupert, I think machines can be too well-oiled. And I should know because as starting out as a mechanic, I would dip each part of the car in oil from, you know, the wheels to the steering wheel to the seatbelt buckle, put it all together. And then I can't tell you how many times I would see a customer drive out of the parking lot. And because of all the oil, the car would just fall apart. The way that you weave personal anecdotes into film theory never ceases to take my breath away, George. That's incredible. And you make an exceptional point. Some say the professional demeanor of Pierce Brosnan returned the films to form, but some argue that he and his portrayal were simply too slick, too refined, too perfect. I think the level of perfection you're talking about, you can't count in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is a perfect movie just in and of itself, right? We're talking about the other parts of the James Bond franchise at large, correct? Of course, perfect maybe in preparation and in portrayal, but not in final product. We broach the subject now that Of all the Bonds who have taken up the mantle, Pierce Brosnan may have been the most established actor, both for the screen and the stage, as he began his tenure. George, what do you think this brought to the role? Well, I think that because of this, you know, that there were benefits because he knew how to act, for one. You know, that's something that you want in an actor. Although I I learned it rather quickly, I'm not giving Pierce Brosnan too much credit for that. But when a franchise becomes too much of a refined and well-oiled machine, it starts to lose that suspense, that intrigue, even the intrigue of who is going to play James Bond. Pierce Brosnan was already a very well-known and established actor. He wasn't somebody who was, again, I'm going to reiterate this, pulling themselves up by the bootstraps like me, like Sean Connery. Mostly me, though. That's well said, George. America already had formed in their mind a vision of Brosnan. He had many famous roles from the English stage circuit to American television. And it was almost as if he was actually portraying Bond instead of becoming him. That's very true. Everyone already knew him as Remington Steele. When you have an actor come into the James Bond franchise who's already well known for portraying a different part, it's kind of hard to suspend your belief and transfer over to the different franchise, and vice versa. Absolutely. Some have said that Pierce Brosnan is the quintessential picture of James Bond. His look fits the part perfectly. George, as someone who redefined what it meant to look like James Bond, your rugged handsomeness overtaking the refined, genteel look of Ian Fleming's description in the original novels, what did you think of a man that some have called an Adonis and others have coined Pretty Boy. Let me put it this way. If you want a Bond who looks good on a DVD case or a cardboard cutout, yeah, go with Pierce Brosnan. But if you want somebody who's going to bring something extra to the role, who's going to be talented, then go with George Lazenby. Simple as, listeners. With that, let's break into what broke open a whole new world of special effects, prop design, and cinematography. Technology. At the turn of the 1990s, James Bond was experiencing a tech revolution, not only on screen, but of screen. Technology in capturing and portraying action sequences had evolved beyond even Timothy Dalton's portrayals, and it was almost as if the franchise adopted the changing of the times within the scripts themselves. George, technology might be what 
Pierce Brosnan's run as Bond is most famous for. Would you agree? I think so. This is a period where you had a franchise that was known for its technologies, for its futuristic gadgets, and now in the real world, these gadgets were becoming more commonplace. So the franchise had to be one step ahead of that. And then that's where it becomes a, a little too cartoonish. Yes, probably more than any other run of Bond films, the technology in Brosnan's depictions were polarizing. Of course, history has come to pan Roger Moore's technological suite. While they appreciate some of the past for their simplicity, this one, it ran the gamut. Some truly revolutionary props, others bordering on the absurd. To put in perspective, the first cell phone-based gadget in a James Bond film was in Tomorrow Never Dies. And that's when people already had cell phones. They were watching this film and going, yeah, I, I kind of get it. You know, what, what's going on? What else do you have for me? And so James Bond as a franchise had to up the ante. You know, we can't just give people phones that aren't plugged into walls anymore. Is basically where we were. We had to go back to the drawing board. And up the ante they did all the way to all in. George, technology began to spiral across Brosnan's four films. Let's talk about the Icaresian moments where... The set design department perhaps flew too close to the sun. Well, there are so many points, Rupert, but I think we have to put it in perspective of who Pierce Brosnan was, because some of these things were a result of the prop department, and some of these things were the result of Pierce Brosnan being the prima donna seasoned actor that he was and making demands as his character of James Bond, incorporating these ridiculous things just to make him comfortable. For instance, the prop department had to incorporate things like back scratcher gadgets or massage chairs because Pierce Brosnan demanded that he have these sort of luxuries on set. It's well known that the sets of James Bond films had an on-site Brookstone store. Along with craft services, there were gloves with hand warmers in them, vibrating chairs of every size, small pilotable helicopters, and a dozen other throwaway clickable comforts that Brosnan demanded to have at hand at any time. Of course, it goes without saying that many of these gadgets made their way into the films themselves, didn't they, George? That's very true. Different things like Aroomba, for instance, rolling around MI6 headquarters, picking up the pistachio shells that Pierce Brosnan would fling on the floor. And then when he saw these marvels of technology that Brookstone had to offer, he wanted to up the ante even more for the fans. And that's how you get things like the invisible car. You know, the uh, snow surfboard. Things that are almost novelties, you know? They're not a gadget. I believe that describes it quite aptly, George. Novelty. Form supplanted function in the Brosnan films. He was a good-looking and stylish man, and he wanted his gadgets to be stylish as well. He would accept no substitutes when it came to the tools of his trade, much less the hammer, much more the tiny scissors that cuts silk ribbon. And this was really at the epitome of product placement, and marketing a franchise. To give you an example, if you go to the James Bond Museum in Lancaster and you go to the Pierce Brosnan tech section of the museum, because the museum, taking my advice, has organized it much like how we've done this show. We have the different actors and then we have the four T's of each actor. If you go to Pierce Brosnan's section of technology at the James Bond Museum of Lancaster, it's just one of those Best Buy mobile vending machines. There you can find your skull candy headphones, your tactile screen protectors, and of course your drink koozie that keeps the drink cold from the interior. 
these once seen as maybe marvels in the 70s are all but carnival fare here in the 1990s when Brosnan was at his height. And I think this is the point in James Bond, we're, we're talking about creating a well-oiled machine, where Brosnan realized all these different points you had to hit throughout the movie. You know, he was an actor, he, he knew how to craft a story, and in James Bond, one of those points was the technology. And so, uh, it became almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. People started to watch James Bond films, not for the acting, not for the story, for what technology was going to come up next. Much like today, people watch Saturday Night Live for the host and not the cast members. Mm, a poignant point to be made, George. Did you know that I actually, contrary to popular belief, hosted Saturday Night Live? Ah, uh, yes. I, of course, did know that being one of the foremost Lazenby fans in the world. But why don't you explain that misnomer to our audience? Well, I hosted. It was a great show. This was shortly after... On Her Majesty's Secret Service came out. It was probably, you know, the, the latter half of the 70s. And afterwards, Lorne Michaels himself came up to me and said, George, that was a great show. However, it was too hilarious. We cannot show it in good faith. And, you know, I was upset by this, but I realized that while he may have been telling the truth, let's face it, he was telling the truth. It was Paul Simon, who I have a, a separate feud with. Uh, who really was pulling the strings. See, Lauren Michaels is sort of a figurehead of Saturday Night Live. Paul Simon sort of runs the show. And back in the 70s, I called Garfunkel a, a curly-headed fuck or something. And so he never really liked me and had it out for me. If, if you want to know something else, originally the line in Mrs. Robinson was, where have you gone, Mr. Lazenby? The franchise turns its lonely eyes to you. And once I said this thing about Garfunkel, they changed it to this no-name Joe DiMaggio instead. The lattice of history is a intricate one, indeed. You highlight an interesting point, George. That is that James Bond must tow a very delicate line. The masses expect at least some degree of lightheartedness, joviality. It is, after all, a caper, and they want to smile. You, of course, in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, towed that line brilliantly. Brosnan, however, lacked the humility to make an audience laugh. Isn't that right? It's very true. He was too concerned with you know, product placement and the, and the technology of the film. For instance, that's why a lot of people think that GoldenEye was the first video game. And, you know, that's sort of the the epitome of technology right there. Technology leaping out of the franchise and creating its own piece of technology, a video game. It is a marvel and a, and a great service, one that is maintained on here into the future. That moment was when Goldeneye crossed over genres, mediums in and of itself. We originally bore the franchise when it went from novel to screen, but now from screen to gaming console. Fascinating, and I doubt Brosnan would have it any other way. Contrary to popular belief, again, had the original James Bond video game. If you remember the uh, original Atari Pong... Who can forget it? That actually was a crossover with James Bond. My face is the, the ping pong ball. It's just... Because it's only one pixel, that it lacks the definition, but it actually is my face in there, so it counts. What's old is always new again when it comes to James Bond, and I think that is highlighted very specifically in the way that James Bond's car rejoined the franchise as an inevitable and important piece of the technological puzzle. Of course, you have Roger Moore's years, which often focused on the vehicle he was driving, whether that be 
car that can go underwater, or a car that can drive while it's cut in half. Brosnan expanded upon this classical piece of the franchise. His car was always outfitted with a suite of gadgets, none the least the infamous invisible car. Yes, I think this is where the James Bond franchise jumped the shark. And I should know a thing about jumping sharks because there was a scene that was deleted in Honor Majesty's Secret Service in which I jumped six of them. Correct me if I'm wrong, George, but originally the script called for three sharks and you said, I won't even do this scene unless you double the amount of sharks. That's true. I was in my car driving away saying that to them. And I said, you better get three more sharks or else I'm not going to do the scene. It was ultimately cut because there was something with PETA or something, you know, they didn't want us jumping over six sharks. PETA, with its arbitrary demands, three sharks, apparently just fine. Six. Now we've crossed a Rubicon. Back to matters at hand, though. Where do you fall on this invisible car? In many ways, it is a microcosm for the films themselves. Many audience members adored it. It alit their technological imagination, but others scoffed and cringed, thinking it was the most elementary possible treatment for a futuristic vehicle. I think you described it perfectly, Rupert. It's a microcosm. It's a perfect description. I probably should have thought of it first. I, and in fact, I did think of it. I just didn't say it, You and you said it. But when you think of the James Bond car in the Pierce Brosnan era, they were just trying to find a place that they could throw in as much gadgetry as possible. For instance, in Tomorrow Never Dies or The World Is Not Enough, whenever Pierce enters the vehicle, he has to shove away handfuls of different gadgets that they wanted to put in the movie, but they couldn't think of a better place for. He can barely sit in the driver's seat because he just has gadgets and shit all over the place. Brosnan was not terribly picky when it came to getting endorsement dollars from various Brookstone gadget franchises. I think it suitably segues us into the next segment through an examination of his famous motorized olive pick. Holding a glass martini, a tiny propeller would drag the olive around the exterior of the glass in ever-shortening circles. Yeah, this was a gadget that wasn't even part of the films. Pierce Brosnan just demanded it was made because he thought that it stirred up the, the vodka in the drink better. That he did. And Brookstone was only too eager to leap to his demands. Of course, now, in his later age, Brosnan is the owner of 115 Brookstone franchises around the world. Perhaps that is fine punctuation and reason enough to move to the aperitif of the episode, the teeny. I think, Rupert, the teeny of Pierce Brosnan epitomizes how spoiled Brosnan was getting on set. We've talked about his incredible demands in relation to product placement. He had even more incredible demands related to the martinis he would drink in the film. Roger Moore, of course, was famous for creating these elaborate, comical, ridiculous martinis with feathers and garnishes and shit. But Pierce Brosnan took a different way to elaboration. He wanted the finest liquors, the finest ingredients of every single martini, even though they could have been fake, they didn't have to be real, but buying all these different alcohols and beverages and ingredients almost bankrupt the franchise. Didn't it just compensating for the massive earnings of product placement were the extraordinary budgets 
Budgets that even in modern times accounting for inflation, no other Bond film has ever attempted to surpass. Bloated is one word for it, grandiose another. Brosnan's demands were legendary, and no more true was this than of the martini. Of course, Brosnan rarely even bothered to drink them. A smell, a splash, and he would dump them out on the ground. Yeah, similar to a wine connoisseur who just does a taste and then spits it in the bucket, this is what Pierce Brosnan would do before the cameras were rolling. And he would kind of laugh it off and try to make people think that this was fine. He would say that he was Irish, so he was very snooty about potatoes and grains and rice and wheat and each ingredient that made the vodka. But really, he was just being an asshole. Those ingredients required full teams of resource management assistance around the world importing some of the finest drink ingredients across the planet. Who can forget when the Cold War was almost reignited, when a group of PAs were forced to smuggle some of the finest vodka in Russia across the border. Yeah, they actually went to what effectively is the NASA of Russia because Pierce Brosnan demanded they use this product that isn't even advertised called Absolute Luna. And it is made with bits of ground-up moon rocks. An extravagant request, and one that almost landed four young Hollywood hopefuls in the gulag. Caught at the Belarusian border, these four individuals had 14 bottles each of absolute lunar strapped to their bodies. Of course, some suspected them to be the famous Russian terror tactic of a human Molotov cocktail. They were immediately detained. In other instances, he would demand all these ingredients... And he would go to the, the tallest part of whatever set we were on or a building and just throw him off the, the top of the building just to, to watch him break. He was a man with power and he knew how to use it. When it came to making this martini, it was no exception. Celebrity mixologists were required on each and every set. This is what really pissed me off, Rupert, because I was there the entire time and I was seeing Pierce Brosnan rise to power. And people think, you know, that I was a pain in the ass to work with on set, which we've discussed was were rumors. But this was someone who knew he had power and knew how to abuse it. He would make the mixologist go to Costco for specific Castelvetrano olives. And as we all know, those aren't in season in certain months. And he would make them go there and they'd have to ask people, and every single time they'd say, P.S., these aren't in season, they're not at Costco, and there's, there's nowhere else around to go. And they would just keep making them go back there again and again and again. Many credit Brosnan with vaulting Costco from a upstart wholesaler to one of the most beloved brands in the country, because despite his irredeemable unquenchable demand for Castelvetrano olives, they always attempted to appease them with a smile on their face, even when the odds were not in their favor. Customer service, it just goes to show, is still king. George, we have the vodka, we have the olive, and we have the celebrity mixologist. It all comes together to form a priceless and ephemeral cocktail in the hands of a man who would do anything but drink it. Let's talk, of course, about the one and only scandal that followed Brosnan around, the inability for him to control himself when it came to splashing the drink into people's faces. Yes, this, I don't know if you'd call it a quirk or a what, but he would demand several different iterations of the same martini. And again, they all look the same on film. And this would take hours for the mixologist to perfect. 
need to mend, you know, let's say 10 of them. And then one by one, he'd look at them and then splash the martini back in the mixologist's face. To the point where the director and I had to get involved. You know, you can't just let someone be doused with 10 martinis, you know, or maybe three, maybe four. I'm probably guilty of this as well, but 10? Come on, that's that's a little too many. Excess is a reoccurring motif in Brosnan's work. Some claim it was his classical stage training that brought it to life. A demand for many takes, for perfection, an intolerance for anything beyond what was written directly on the script page. He demanded that all of this was written into the script pages as well. All of this preparation would be in parentheticals, and then he demanded that the writers said, and now Pierce Brosnan splashes 10 martinis in the mixologist's face. And he would point to the script and, and the cue cards and say, sorry, this is what we have to do. The lawsuit from the olive that blinded celebrity mixologist Dwayne Reevy, still ongoing, but the legacy not all bleak. The hat with an umbrella visor invented to protect mixologists everywhere. Of course, now available at your local Brookstone. This was an invention I came up with one day when I'd realized that I'd lost control. You know, there was a point in the Timothy Dalton years where I realized I lost control. And unfortunately, it happened again with Pierce Brosnan. This was the martini splashing. And so I said, okay, well, we have to do something about this. And there was a little piece of a cow windshield that we were going to use in a different set. And a headband from the prop department, I fastened it together and I gave the mixologist this mask. And, you know, things went on smoothly. I was able to alleviate all this with just my quick thinking and ingenuity. And that, I think, goes to show an underlying truth, and one that has stopped the Brosnan years from eclipsing any other Bond portrayal. It's that sometimes a little elbow grease, a little imperfection, can make the end product all the more perfect. Listeners, don't go anywhere. When we return, we talk about the threads that made Pierce Brosnan's wardrobe the envy of the upper crust all over the world. He was a man of leisure, and leisure bore in his suits. Greetings, listeners. Rupert Carmichael here again for the PBS and the BBC. We've all heard the story of Jimmy Hoffa, the American mob, and the clandestine labor union they call the Teamsters. But what about their less famous sister union? This organization is every bit as entangled in intrigue, and their true aims were even harder to untangle. The Seamsters, hanging by a thread, follows the scintillating summer of 1972, where the U.S. Department of Justice waged war on a textile union that was bent on fabricating evidence and corrupt to its core. Join us for this eight-part radio event, released in reverse chronological order, and learn how a stitch in time saved $9.4 million. G'day listeners, it's George. On Building a Better Bond, Rupert and I use my patented 4Ts method to examine and analyze every Bond actor. But aside from talk, Tux, Tech, and Teeny, James Bond is often remembered by his fifth T, his car. I guess maybe that could be tires, I didn't really think that one through. The Bondmobile is a staple of iconic product placement done almost spitefully to any man with a midlife crisis. And no car has done a better job at making Sheila's swoon and blokes gloom than the Aston Martin. I partnered with the legendary company to offer listeners of the show a limited edition Aston Lazenby. And when they balked at the manufacturing price alone, we settled on the next best thing. Listeners who already own an Aston Martin can now get a George Lazenby hood ornament for it. Buy now and receive a printed pocketbook filled with my own concept drawings for what the limited edition Roadster could have been. No spoilers, but it had multiple flames on the side and a pair of bollocks on the exhaust pipe. 
Get in gear and buy now at astonmartin.com slash Lazenby. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back, listeners. We've already broached the subject of the opulence demanded by a man of Brosnan's stature. This, of course, became at confluence when it came to actually outlining his stature in the silk threads of the James Bond tuxedo. Gone are the years of Dalton's disheveled necktie thrown over a chair, top button sprung loose as he strangles a man to death with his bare hands. We return in the 90s to a more refined vision of James Bond, one that always looks impeccable, one that never leaves a bloodstain. George, it can't be denied for all Brosnan's faults, he always looked good while on screen. Not as good as me, but... Again, we're talking about everybody else but me, right? As usual, yes, George. Yeah, he looked good, you know? He looked like the part, and this is why a lot of people, when they picture James Bond and they grew up in this time, they just picture Pierce Brosnan. But he may be a, a little too vanilla for my taste. But I think the reason he was so comfortable is that he demanded that all of his tuxedos were lined with either money or the finest metals before he stepped into any of them. Not his own money. He would make the different cast and crew bring their own money, empty their wallets, and have the tailor line all the tuxedos. And he said it just made him feel more comfortable. However, it really weighted down all of the tuxedos as well. Let's just, if you're at home, take take a 5 or a, or a $10 bill, whatever you have handy, and slowly brush it against the soft upper part of your cheek. I do this at night with hundreds. It exfoliates my skin. I'm no man of means, but it is difficult to argue the palliative properties of the U.S. dollar. That said, logistical concerns quickly sprung up as Brosnan's list of demands grew ever longer. Yeah, so first it was, you know, emptying people's wallets, then it was the finest metals, then it was wherever they were filming, they would have to get in touch with different banks, and they would have to open their vaults and create different gold linings for all of his tuxedos. And so you'll notice in the later films, you know, Die Another Day, or Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, he's during his own stunts, but they had to be sped up because he was going so slow because of all the gold and metal lined in his tuxedo. Too true. And it's evidence for some who say that in a general progression, Bonds have only gotten buffer over time. Of course, Brosnan's physique on screen was fairly diminutive, sleek, agile, compact. But he was working with a great deal of core strength, hauling around suits of cash and coin on his own body. He became obsessed with it. Maybe it was some sort of gold poisoning or something being that close to his skin all the time, but he ended up needing this money surrounding him at all times in his dressing rooms, in his trailers. He had the drywall lined with money. In the James Bond cars, he would have the seats upholstered with money, and then in post, they would have to make it look like leather. Another true story is that he became convinced that there were golden eyes in the film GoldenEye that they were just not telling him about. And he became obsessed with finding these golden orbs around the set. It was an obsession and a compulsion that turned the set of Tomorrow Never Dies into a real-life Indiana Jones-esque relic hunt. Brosnan would break into other trailers. He would upend props. He would break ground through the asphalt of Studio 6, all in desperate seeking of these mythical golden eyes. Alas, he could never find them. His lust for gold never sated. He hired Harrison Ford on contract to come to help him find these golden eyes, and he never could. And so to alleviate this, he demanded that 
at the end of every shoot day that he could jump into a pile of money, a la Scrooge McDuck. And this just sort of quelled any any nerves that he had. In the end, we just had to make these fake golden orbs. We went to a Walgreens and got uh, styrofoam balls, similar to if you made the uh, solar system in like third grade. And we painted them gold and said, here, Pierce, here, here are the golden eyes you've been waiting for. And he was satiated, thankfully. Making a James Bond production run smoothly is always about balancing the needs and demands of not only the viewing public, but also the man that is Bond. I think when we talk about Tuxedo, we talk about greater overall wardrobe. It is inevitable that the two are linked. I think no better example of Brosnan's opulence can be seen than through the demands he made of his villains. Of course, who can forget the villain in Die Another Day, by name of Zhao, but in popular zeitgeist, called Diamond Face. His villainry defined as simply a man with diamonds in his face. Brosnan could imagine no greater sin than hoarding precious gems. It made the actor very uncomfortable because in scenes when they would have dialogue, he would notice that Pierce would be salivating, looking at his face full of diamonds. And there would have to be a PA on set wiping Pierce's face down after every take because he would be literally standing in a puddle. I had a heart-to-heart with him once and he likened this experience to... Uh, in the Looney Tunes, when Bugs Bunny looks at Daffy Duck and he becomes a giant turkey leg. He needed the diamonds, he needed the gold, he needed the money. If each Bond stood for one of the seven deadly sins, then Brosnan, inevitably, would be greed. His compulsion to achieve, be it accolades, fame, or wealth, drove him to a successful and still ongoing acting career, but it also drove the sets of the Bond films to madness. No expense could be spared. It was very Jurassic Parkian, how every set needed to be encrusted, bedecked, and outfitted in the most lavish possible means. Adami thinks, Rupert, that this was a reaction to a certain stipulation in Pierce Brosnan's James Bond contract that had just happened at the start of his James Bond career. Enlighten us, George. So this had never happened in any other contract But Pierce Brosnan had to sign something that said he would not wear a tuxedo in any other film while he played the part of James Bond. So as not to confuse the audience. This, of course, happened when Roger Moore wore a tuxedo in a different film and people thought maybe he was playing James Bond, maybe he was undercover. They didn't want this to happen again. And I think by pigeonholing Brosnan in the tuxedo in James Bond, it made him have the power even more. And it made him able to sort of fuck with everyone when he wanted to wear a tuxedo in other films. For instance, in Thomas Crown Affair, he's wearing a tuxedo, but his bow tie is undone. And he said, well, that's a loophole because I can do that. Uh, Then he went on to make other films such as The Man in the Tuxedo, where he was not wearing a tuxedo the entire time, but he wanted the title of the film to be that just to make the producers nervous. It's a drive to test others the same way that he has tested himself. Going through the rigors of English acting school, taking the stage in front of London's most critical crowds, and then transitioning to the helter-skelter world of Hollywood, one must say that it tested his Remington steel, and it caused him to test it in others. I believe, George, this is as good a time as any to move on to one of the most famous and infamous parts of Brosnan's portrayal that is the incisive, cutting, and 
ever quippy remarks of the Irishman. Rupert, we've talked about how the Roger Moore era borderlined insanity because of these quippy remarks. In the pendulum swung, we had Timothy Dalton, whose remarks terrified anyone on set and anyone watching the films. And then with Pierce Brosnan, the pendulum swung back. Not all the way, but enough to make people cringe. It's true. Brosnan, in many ways, is a tale of two talkers. The Brosnan on screen, full of molasses-thick charm that would often give a mental toothache to those watching. And then behind the scenes, the classic dry, incisive British remarker. His insults to stagehands and production assistants are legendary in the industry. The problem, Rupert, is he didn't use this wit that was God-given to him on screen. He wanted everything to be very manufactured, and this is how we get back to that well-oiled machine that we've been talking about. Nowhere more evident is it than in the names of the characters. You know, if you look back in James Bond history, you have interesting character names. They describe who the character is. You know, you have Goldfinger. You have Pussy Galore. You know, they, they conjure a, a certain image. But when you get to Pierce Brosnan, the names are almost tailor-made so he can make a quip about them. Too true, George. And the naming of the villains was something of a sticking point between Brosnan and his producers. George, I know you have much to say on this matter. What were some of the most egregious infractions? that Brosnan levied against the franchise. Well, right off the top of my head, you have Mr. Kill, who Bond quips, he has a name to die for. You know, this is the most eye-rolling, inducing name for a villain I could think of. The most egregious, I think, is, of course, Christmas Jones from The World Is Not Enough. Sure, it's unique, but right when she's introduced, you know that in the end of the film, he's going to have something to say about it. And he does, because, of course, as we all know, Christmas only comes once a year, whatever. Which is, it's a great line if I would have said it, but it's just because of the product of what the James Bond franchise was at that point. Pierce Brosnan wanted something in every single character that he could make a quip out of. Originally, this character's name was supposed to be Passover Goldstein, and the line was supposed to be something about, you know, leaving an extra glass of wine out for Elijah or something, and then he said, no, it needs to be more straightforward than that. It needs to be Christmas Jones so I can make a joke about Christmas specifically. And so he made the writers come up with a huge board of post-its of just different words and nouns and then different puns they thought of. And then they would attribute a noun to a person's name so he could create these puns. Too true. And it created a weird effect in the films where when you were introduced to a character, many savvy moviegoers would have a sort of sinking feeling in their stomach, where they would wait all film for the poison pill of Pierce Brosnan's line to be delivered. That's exactly right, Rupert. So if you hear someone come on screen in, for instance, Tomorrow Never Dies, and her name is Tree, you know that later on Brosnan's going to say, well, we should make like a tree and leave if she starts to run away and they have to pursue her. True. And then you, you just hear this collective groan in theater audiences coming over and over again. But this is what Pierce Brosnan wanted. This was, just like technology, another beat, something else in the well-oiled machine that people would come to see James Bond for at this point in history. This phenomenon reached a fevered pitch during early screening for Die Another Day, during which audience members heard a character introduced as Refrigerator Zhang. Now, the collective wincing at this villain's introduction could be felt on a seismograph, and then inevitably, when... Refrigerator Zhang escapes Bond's capture, and he turns coyly to the camera and says, looks like we better go catch him. 
there were mass walkouts across the country. I think this is just another example of Pierce Brosnan seizing his power and using it where he did not need to. You have to give credit to the other people around you who make this movie great, and that's something else that Pierce Brosnan was not prepared to do. That's why a lot of different actors in the movies either quit or were not happy the entire time because Pierce Brosnan, he put so much effort into making these quips, but he would keep them all to himself. He didn't want anyone else to have any funny lines, so everybody else has sort of a very dry reading. He's just saying these quips, making fun of their names one by one for minutes at a time. And it got to the point where he had just seen Nutty Professor 2 of the Clumps. And so he saw Eddie Murphy play a bunch of different characters and he convinced himself James Bond would be better if he just played every single character. And now this gets into a very dark period in the franchise. The height of vanity where parody becomes prophecy. Austin Powers would later play upon this same joke, but little did audiences know just how direct an inference Mike Myers was making. Pierce Brosnan played his own villain. In the world is not enough. That villain's name, of course, George, was... Mrs. Drapes. And he wanted to insert himself in this even more. So he had Mrs. Drapes have a twin sister who he also played called Mrs. Carpet. And I think you know where this is going, Rupert. And I think the American government knew where it was headed, where they slapped the world is not enough with an NC-17 rating just for this perspective joke. Once again, it threw the film back into the production pipeline. I think that NC-17 was was generous of them because nobody wants to see P.S. Brosnan have a three-way with himself after he's just had a quip about carpets matching drapes. No one indeed and no one did. And that's why that particular moment in James Bond history where Pierce Brosnan plays every role on screen, thankfully, in his one-man show, never made it to air. There is a deleted scene where he plays his chubby nephew and they're all at Thanksgiving dinner, and I'm I'm really glad that at least that didn't make it into the film. I think you speak for the Earth's population when you say that, George. And I think when we speak about speaking, we have to amend today's conversation with a look at some of Brosnan's smoothest moments off camera. As we've already detailed on camera, it was a classic case of perhaps trying just too hard. But in the moments between takes, this is where Brosnan's wit excelled. Yeah, this sort of grinded my gears, Rupert. As you know, I have quite a great wit as well. And when you see somebody getting laughs and being the center of attention when you usually are, it's sort of hard to, to take in. And even though Brosnan was renowned for throwing a bunch of martinis in people's faces and making the cast and crew do terrible things that they didn't want to do, he could win them over with, with his charm and his good looks. And I thought that, you know, I was kind of being their hero that they needed and they were taking me for granted. Behind the scenes became a scene unto itself, as our own George Lazenby squared off in a battle of wits and mouths with Piers Brosnan. What began is lighthearted, quickly became contentious. There was a silver lining because this renowned battle became the inspiration for Wilma Valderrama's series Yo Mama on MTV later on. Once again, we see the genetics of James Bond present down the family tree of popular culture. What hasn't been touched by this amazing franchise? What hasn't been inspired by its dapper bow ties and shaken not stirred drinks. George, Pierce Brosnan enters the annals of Bond history as a man who brought a level of decorum, a level of prestige to the role. And to that, 
I believe the franchise owes him a debt of gratitude, but as you said, there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Excess tainted Brosnan's portrayal, and it seems perhaps this more than anything is what is remembered of his time on screen. George, perhaps your last words will illuminate this for us. Yes, Rupert, even though Brosnan was bond to an entire generation, we have to remember that he was still using relics and holdovers from the Roger Moore era. And as times change, Bond as a whole needs to change too. Except for On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is a masterpiece in and of itself. But the excess and the stories that we've told of the Brosnan years remind me of a story from early in my career. I'm thrilled at the prospect. So it was at the start of my career modeling in the UK. Wouldn't you know it, I had a bit of a rival and his name was Chip Wallingford. So Chip was what you'd call classically handsome. You know, he didn't possess the rugged masculinity or threatening gravitas that I have. But at that time, that's not what advertisers wanted. They didn't want to live in fear of a man from a chocolate advertisement breaking into their home and stealing their wives, which to their credit, I ended up doing on more than one occasion. But at this time, Chip was everywhere because he was just a generic man, you know? He was vanilla, he was white bread, he was shoe polish, he was drywall. He was literally the spokesman for all of these products. And so wherever I turned, Chip was there. And he was almost taunting me with mundanity. But people loved him and they were content with what they knew. Which was fine for a while, but Rupert, do you know what happened to Chip Wallingford? What happened, George? Well, he was hit by a bus in an unrelated incident. But this happened right before he was supposed to be in an ad for the Big Fry Chocolate Company. And do you know who the backup model was? Yours truly. Mm. And so this, Rupert, was my big break. And as soon as other brands saw what they could have with me modeling for Big Fry, it's like something clicked and everyone in town was dropping their old chip ads and hiring me on to replace them. Because why have vanilla when you could have chocolate, am I right? Right, you are, George. So what I'm trying to say is just because something is ubiquitous doesn't mean it's right. And when Daniel Craig finally stepped into the tux, we all realized that Chip Wallingford wasn't such a great fucking guy after all, was he? I mean that Pierce Brosnan wasn't so great. Well said, as always, George. And next week, we will investigate what happens when the polish comes off and James Bond gets its gritty reboot. Join us next week when we speak about Daniel Craig and his carrying of the Bond torch now and into the future. In conjunction with the PBS and the BBC, I am Rupert Carmichael. I'm George Lazenby. Good night. Thank <laughs> you.